This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Mr. You invited the whole world to the you you invited the whole world to come here. Why can't we film? It's a public place. This is the uh, accreditation. Okay. We can film anywhere we want. Okay. There are only, of course, but only for the Qatar. Qatar, you have because rule. Qatar is a no, no, no. We don't need permit. No, no. But 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 no, but listen, but listen, but, listen, but you can break the camera. You want to break the camera? Okay, you break the camera. Okay. Yes. So you're threatening us by by by, by smashing the camera. Today on the Indo Daily, how is a country the size of Carlo hosting the world's biggest sporting event? The winner to organize the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Qatar brings the World Cup to the Middle East for the first time ever, but it's not without controversy. When corruption means workers are enslaved, that they die on construction sites in Qatar, then it has to be stopped right now. So regarding the LGBT community, we stand for inclusivity. We've been very clear on our standpoint on that. The beautiful game has come in for serious scrutiny, including allegations of corruption and FBI arrests. It's the largest corruption scandal in the history of football's world-governing body, FIFA. Seven senior FIFA officials arrested at the crack of dawn. The 47-count indictment against these individuals includes charges of racketeering, wire fraud, and money laundering conspiracies spanning two decades. I'm Fionn Sheehan, and today on the Indo Daily, I'm joined by Dan McDonald, football correspondent with the Irish Independent, to look at the biggest scandals to rock the World Cup. Shall I recall the candidates? Australia, Japan, Korea, Qatar, United States of America. The winner to organize the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Dan, describe generally what, what sport washing well i suppose that there's there's various definitions of it but i suppose the straightforward way of describing it it's a a country with a difficult troubled controversial reputation trying to improve that reputation through sport trying to maybe normalize themselves through sport uh, so in in the world people would look at clubs such as manchester city uh, with owners from the uh, from the UAE um, they would view that as a form of, of sports washing the Saudi Arabia takeover of Newcastle an extremely high profile example at the moment where um, a country or a regime that may be associated with one thing uses sport 
to, to almost allow people to think, well, actually, you know, maybe it's not so bad there after all. You know, through history, sports washing, international, high level international sport, uh, they overlap. Yeah, so in propaganda terms, you'd, you'd go back to 1934, Mussolini hosts the World Cup. 1936, Hitler hosts the, the Berlin Olympics. And even in the modern era, the World Cup hasn't been exempt from this either. Talk to us about 1978 and Argentina. Well, people talk about Qatar this year being a controversial World Cup. I think 1978 is the... It's the closest rival to it. And probably it's it's actually one of those as well where people of a certain age might remember it nostalgically and Mario Kempes and the streamers on the pitch and sort of the, the high camera angle and brilliant football. And maybe that's an, an example of sports washing in action because, yes, in 1976, there was a, a right-wing military dictatorship took over Argentina in a coup. The political situation there in previous years hadn't been ideal. But by 1978, I mean, this was a country where there was large numbers of people disappeared, various strands and sections of society, people gone missing, sort of been thrown out of planes, all the, the worst sort of human rights abuses you could you could think of. And um, there was a campaign in the previous 12 months coming up to the tournament from, from various sort of you know, protests against going there. This is Argentina 78, scene of the 11th World Cup final. 16 teams... 77,360 spectators here in the River Plate Stadium in Buenos Aires and some 600 million television viewers in virtually every corner of the FIFA ploughed on. Joe Havelange was the president at the time. He was Brazilian. And this was a time when FIFA was changing from a, a very strictly British-run, narrow European organisation to a, a slightly more global force. And Joe Havelange didn't want to get involved, they said, um, with politics. And they went and they were wined and dined by uh, General Fidela and co at a time when terrible things were happening within very close proximity of some of the stadiums. Yeah, um, General Jorge Rafael Videla, the first of a number of, of, of military hunter uh, leaders uh, at the time in Argentina. But we were quite literally within yards of stadia where where matches being played you had torture chambers and and murder squads in action yeah within 500 meters of the of the stadium so and this is the, the the naval academy basically in in buenos aires yes while i mean almost in in the subsequent years maybe the the, the full horror was revealed but obviously you know there was sort of uh, critics of the regime and and various people who were being rounded up in, in blunt terms. I mean, it's just extraordinary to, to read back to 1978 because um, Henry Kissinger was knocking about with uh, the generals at the time and there was, like, maybe it's a classic case where maybe, I suppose, communication worked differently, that maybe FIFA could almost, to a degree, absolve themselves and say, well, we didn't know how bad it was until it sort of emerged over time. Um, but in saying that, like you had in the previous, as I said, the 12 months coming up to it, there was a campaign from France trying to get the French team to pull out of the competition. You have Paul Breitner from you know, Germany, an influential player who decides not to play, which is you know, stronger than anything that's happened uh, this year. So it was a hugely controversial event. Um, but I suppose it was a, an example of FIFA saying the World Cup shall continue 
quotes from various FIFA officials uh, effectively saying you know, things things aren't as bad as it may seem. But it worked. Argentina won. Yeah. And and therefore the, the dictatorship got a got a victory uh, out of it. Tell us about the incident in the dressing room against their opponents Peru before the, in the semi-final. The controversy is that across the entire competition General Videla went into one dressing room and it just happened to be the Peruvian dressing room and um, before a crunch game between Argentina and Peru and um, that Argentina needed a heavy victory in to advance and long story short like Argentina needed to win by a wide margin and Again, there's an element of conjecture in terms of the details of what happened in that dressing room. Um, but what is clear is that Argentina did win the game by the margin that was required. There was some dubious uh, defending and goalkeeping and that would probably be today subject to you know, suspicious betting patterns if, uh, if people were sort of uh, analysing it. And yeah, there was a good relationship between Argentina and Peru at the time or so it was stressed in the dressing room to those players um, in no uncertain terms apparently by General uh, Videla and Argentina advanced they they got the result they needed and and went went on on to win this could never happen in in the modern era that we would have the awarding of such a, a prestigious tournament to a country around which there were substantial human rights concerns or or with leaders uh, who on the international stage had had dubious records. Russia 2018, Qatar 22. So here we are. Fast forward to 2010 then. Talk me through that process whereby those two countries get awarded the World Cups. Yeah, generally, like there would be one World Cup handed out at a time. But in, in the build up to 2010, the decision was made to do 2018 and 2022 bids in, in the one go. This would have been reasonably unusual at the time. And the crucial thing about 2010 is the cast of characters that has assembled at that point because the hosting of competitions that power, as much as FIFA is a global organization with a, pretty much every country in the world as a member, and it has a sort of a parish pump element to sense, you know, Congress and how all these things operate. Uh, it was a small executive committee who, uh, who had the power to decide where these competitions go. So the 2018 FIFA World Cup, 2018 FIFA World Cup, Ladies and gentlemen, will be organized in Russia. There would have been some big shots in for 2018 and for 2022. Like 2018, you had you had England in the mix. You had David Beckham front and center. You had Prince William. You had David Cameron. You had the sort of the the full sort of shooting gallery of the great and the good of of British society. 2022, America would have been the hot favorites. I, I think Russia. To be fair, as much as it's an ex extremely controversial regime and, and even looking back now at some things that were said and done in 2018, there's probably a degree of embarrassment around them. They probably would have still been viewed as a viable candidate for 2018 just purely because it has a football tradition, has a history of hosting events, has you know, had a Moscow Olympics. But obviously in the, in, the, in the case of Qatar, they would have been, I suppose, on, on paper uh, the the massive underdogs for 2022. But for example, I mean, FIFA, for all these tournaments, um, they would do a technical report. They send independent, uh, well, they would be FIFA, but you know, they don't, they're not people who have a vote in the process. They just go out and give a, a technical assessment, which is presented to decision makers. It's like a briefing, I suppose. And Qatar finished bottom of the 2022 one because they didn't have stadiums. You know, they had a handful of stadiums. They had no infrastructure, um, a country with no history of, of welcoming visitors. But, Interesting 
grouping on the FIFA committee which basically decided this such that the FBI basically got involved and and what effectively did they find? Effectively they found I mean in blunt terms that there was money changing hands for votes Um, and I mean some of this money might have been paid in the name of being granted to a football federation as opposed to maybe uh, a brown envelope style deal, although there was some of that uh, around it as well, um, around the sort of the couple of inquiries there's been. But effectively, yes, like the position, the power was in the, the hands of a small number of people. And this small number of people were they were receiving financial inducements to go in a particular way. In short, these individuals through these organizations engaged in bribery to decide who would televise games, where the games would be held, and who would run the organization overseeing organized soccer worldwide, one of the most popular sports around the globe. And where the FBI investigation that you mentioned, um, where that took flight, there was uh, an American official named Chuck Blazer, who would have been part of the CONCACAF Federation, which is the federation of the sort of Caribbean and, and sort of North American football bodies all under one umbrella. And he would have been high up in that organization uh, behind an individual named Jack Warner from Trinidad and Tobago, whose fingerprints are all over this and would have been a central influential figure. Going back to the World Cup in 2010 being awarded to South Africa, he would have been very much involved in that too. And I suppose Jack Warner is to the fore of this culture of the power of being able to host tournaments, uh, being in your hands. And people who were responsible for bids knew that they were certain people needed to get inside. It's a, it's a long story, but Chuck Blazer was very close to Jack Warner ended up um, in a little bit of bother whereby he just had to agree to wear a wiretap and to ensnare all the other people who were engaging in the act of effectively being being bribed. So, what about our old friend, Sepp Blatter, who is FIFA president throughout all this period? How, how does he emerge from it all? Well, Sepp Blatter, I suppose, would have been one of these tef- Teflon sports administrators who would believe that they... Um, they were above the law to a degree. And I mean, his whole history is, is you know, contentious. He worked under Joe Havelange earlier. Um, he eventually became the most powerful figure. The, Sepp Blatter's, the, the strength of his, of, of his sort of uh, presidency, um, and maybe we can relate to it in the, the political system here, is that um, he had, the, he had the, the, the parish pump system was all weighted in, in his direction, you know. He may not have been hugely popular in, the, in, in Europe, in the central hub, but he had everyone else on side and was responsible for some programs that did bring development around the world. But all the people that operated on that executive committee, they sat below Sepp Blatter and they were effectively all allies of his across the various years, the various scraps he, he had encountered, you know, various sort of investigations in the late 90s. And it all comes back to, right, FIFA, how is it funded? Where, where is all this money coming from? It's all about like TV rights and it's all about image rights and it's about the monetizing the power of the World Cup. And that's how FIFA made all their money. Um, and Sepp Blatter was the, the, the general at the top of it with the executive committee people underneath. He initially, when this investigation came on board, he was able to say to a point, he, he wasn't in favour of Qatar in 2022, for example. He, he did actually want the United States to win it. This was my concern. So Qatar was too small? Qatar is too small to do that. That's, that's not, in my opinion, 
uh, still now, but uh, now they will never go back to one small country. Uh, but uh, <coughs> that the World Cup needs to be spread around. And he was able to reasonably say, to a point, there was no suggestion that he had received monies improperly. However, he presided over this culture. But then eventually, um, information emerges about um, a transaction between Sepp Blatter and Michel Platini, the French football legend that leads to Sepp Blatter eventually resigning. But he wasn't caught up in the investigation initially. But of course, if you preside over a, a system that's proven to be toxic, then clearly the person at the top is, cannot plead ignorance of it. So we, we now have, uh, in the middle of winter, uh, the first Winter World Cup because it's too hot to play there during the during the summer uh, in Qatar, and there are all sorts of concerns being expressed about it, that country's suitability to host this major tournament. This is truly, uh, you know, uh, for us uh, a very important opportunity to you know to maybe to a certain extent dispel a lot of the uh, inaccurate concerns that people have about Qatar, not only about Qatar, but the region generally. Yeah, and that's why it's the most controversial awarding of all time. I mean, the sheer fact that they, they held a vote for a World Cup, which is always held in the summer, and brought it to a country where it's too warm to play. Within, within a short period of time, it became apparent, you just cannot play here. It's not, it's not physically possible. That emphasizes the, the extent to which people who were voting weren't really looking at what is the, the best option for football. So yeah, there's almost a twofold element to the issues of Qatar. There's a slightly more trivial discombobulation of like what we know the football calendar to be and, and, and breaking with tradition and um, everything that goes with that. But the more serious and the much more serious grave concerns that hang around it is the treatment of lowly paid workers there. And they had a sort of a system called kafala, which is effectively a form of modern slavery, whereby you know, workers there um, have no rights. Effectively, they they belong to, to the, the people that they work for. And the stadiums, it became clear that in a country with no infrastructure and no stadiums, these were the people who were going to build this big event for everyone to come and attend. On the 38th and 39th floors are offices occupied by the 2022 World Cup Organising Committee. But some of the men who built these offices have become victims of serious labour exploitation. They went unpaid for over a year. They were abandoned by their employer and left to live in squalor. Qatar's labour system stopped them quitting their jobs or leaving the country without their employer's permission. The second strand of it is that when we skip forward to 2022, it's that it's a country that still is, um, is very heavily restrictive, you know, for the, the rights of LGBTQ people. I mean, effectively, same-sex relationships are illegal. Crucial to stress, like, you know, issues that FIFA would be strong on in terms of, like, their, their slogans and their advertising. And, and they would say they would preach, you know, inclusivity and involvement and... And yet they're bringing the tournament to a place where effectively people are being told that their, their right to be themselves is not recognized there. It's not, it's not a case, sometimes, sometimes people would say it's about you can impose Western values on a, on a place. And I can understand where people would come at that from. But clearly in Qatar, it's, it's heavily restrictive and, and troubling. And some of the stories that have emerged about the treatment of, for example, gay people uh, in Qatar would be, be deeply worrying. So there's, a myriad of concerns. And yet, 
we are seeing international stars like David Beckham turning up and effectively promoting the tournament. How does this affect their their standing? We've seen similar with his old friend Gary Neville. You've got a choice, I think, haven't you? What, going or not going? Well, <laughs> my view always has been that you either highlight the issues and challenges in these countries and speak about them, or you basically don't say anything, you stay back home and don't go. And I've always said we should challenge them. There's another option, you stay at home and highlight the abuses. You don't have to go and take the Qataris' money. What impact is it having on the reputation of, of major international stars and FIFA itself to be hosting this tournament here? You kind of wonder with Qatar, and there's a sort of a scepticism at this stage about the extent to which they're really interested in this. And is this just a show of strength for Qatar to say, we have the money to do this. We have the money to get David Beckham. David Beckham in 2010 at the bidding process was rocking into the, the hall with Prince William as part of the English bid. And then you skip forward in time and he's like on a boat traveling around Qatar talking about what a wonderful place that it is. And, and David Beckham would have been viewed as probably an iconic figure for speaking out about sort of some of the, on behalf of some of the people who aren't welcome in Qatar. The extent to which it's damaging to the relation, the status of FIFA. I mean, FIFA is probably still a dirty word in a lot of people's eyes. Um, and they're clearly going to brazen on through this to a degree. Uh, in terms of someone like Gary Neville, that's probably a more interesting example because Gary Neville is someone who has is quite prominent and vocal on social issues in his own country, um, can often speak quite impressively about them, yet he is going to work for BN Sports, which is a TV broadcaster that is very much synonymous with, with Qatar's rise. Um, spent heavily on the, the TV rights for French football, which is believed to be one of the huge elements of the getting influential French people on side for the tournament going there. So someone like Gary Neville now, his reputation has been question because it's one thing for someone to, to go there and work for the BBC. They're doing their job with their employer to accept money from a Qatari state organ, slightly different. What are the expectations for the World Cup? Well, it's a good question in the sense of what represents a good World Cup now. It's, it's very unclear actually what that is. It's clear that the story of the World Cup is going to be inextricably linked with the hosting of it. As much as people will completely get caught up with the football as you will when it's four games a day and it starts to take over yeah, your life a small bit, there's still going to be stories every day, I believe anyway, about the events around it and where it's taking place. You see pictures now, you know, in the, in the week prior to the tournament, you see pictures of supporters there. There's question marks. There are England fans singing England, you know, football's coming home, but they're not from England. They appear to have come in from India. And there's sort of, again, a, a question marks around it. Or maybe they're just passionate football fans. What has been established is that Qatar have paid fans from the competing countries to visit there and to say nice things about Qatar and they're having their accommodation paid. And clearly there's going to be an attempt to, to, to create the sense that this is a normal World Cup and a normal festi festival of football as it is when it's patently not going to be that. So it's very unclear actually what, what, what would represent a good World Cup here. I suppose um, passing by without major uh, diplomatic incident, I mean, that's a very low bar. Yeah, so unlikely to get much football hooliganism at this one because they will not take kindly no, to the likes of no, that. No, no, no. Well, Putin, of course, I mean, didn't have much that in Russia either because Putin uh, effectively sent them off to Siberia yeah. for the tournament. So Qatar, they just, they just won't get there in the first place. 
your bags are packed, you're ready to go, you're heading and you're going to do a daily podcast while you're out there. We are, yeah, the Indo World Cup because, yeah, I am going to be on the ground out there um, and we are going to do something every day, sort of a video show with our sort of stable of staff, pundits, guests, various people. I'm also going to get some people over there, various people you meet along the way over there to maybe speak to us and, and contribute as well. So we're looking forward to it. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a blank canvas, this tournament. I think anyone, I speak to any other sort of media people I've spoken to who are going, we're probably all having the same conversation. We, we don't know what this is going to be like. Like previous tournaments, you plot out your, your football route and your itinerary. Uh, you have a lot of flying and traveling and stuff. Here, we're all just going to be pretty much in the one place. I think Qatar would, would fit into Cork and Kerry very neatly. And the stadium radius is even smaller. And every day, you, you think there'll be a football story every day. It might be something completely different and that's that's certainly the, it'll be interesting to plot the course of where the podcast starts and, and what we're talking about two, three weeks in Finally your tip to win I think my tip to win is Brazil um, it's not exactly a, an original selection we are mid season in terms of the European club calendar which you could argue you know the fatigue and some of the other elements wouldn't be a factor but we're still going to a warm climate. Like the games are going to be played in very hot conditions. And I think just with that in mind, like Brazil have a very good squad. They have a sort of a high pressing style and they might just be better able to absorb, to, 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 to operate that in the conditions than some of the European sides who may still find that difficult. And my thanks to Dan McDonald for joining me today. I'm Fionn Sheen, and today's episode of the Indo Daily was researched and produced by Gareth Mulhall with sound design by John Smith. Archive clips from TV2 Denmark, BBC, Channel 4, The Guardian, CBS, ITV, RTE and independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. And to hear more of our award-winning journalism, visit independent.ie or wherever you get your podcasts.